August 26th. Lil Baby presents yeah. Only Us Tour. Made it out the trenches this time. At Nationwide Arena. Get ready for an epic summer. Lil Baby's IOU Tour has finally touched down. It's Lil Baby live in concert featuring the featuring Kid LaRoo, Glossa, Rilo Rodriguez, and Honcho. Get your tickets are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com. Brought to you by Mammoth Lot and AG Touring. Today's episode is brought to you by our dedicated followers and listeners. And I mean that in all sincerity. When this episode gets published, I've been informed we'll have passed 40k downloads, which is insane. Um, when we reached 10k downloads last month, we were astonished by the response and support from all of you who listen. The fact that a month later, the amount of people listening to us has grown by 400% is, once again, astonishing, and one that I and all of us here who are part of this project are grateful for. Thank you to all of those who tune in and listen, and to those of you who support us on our Buy Me A Coffee page. You're the best audience one could ask for, and now, on to the show. Finance Freddy's podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. In our last episode, we had just concluded the story of Sister Location, where Michael had naively listened to Circus Baby's instructions, believing he was helping her, perhaps even saving her. But instead, Baby is revealed to have been manipulating him, playing pretend this entire time. In actuality, she was only waiting to lure Michael into the scooping room. Circus Baby revealed to Michael that all the other Funtime robots had previously been there that night, all of them torn apart and fused into an amalgamation of tentacle-like tubes and wires and eyes, which called itself Innard. The bedraggled mess of robotic scraps had lured Michael into the scooping room in order to use the device to create a hiding space inside of Michael for them, to turn Mike into their own personal disguise. The scooper disemboweled Michael, removing the majority of his inner organs and creating a massive gash on his torso, from his waist to his neck. The steel beholder then used its various tentacle-like appendages to maneuver the rest of Michael's innards out of his body, making room for Ennard. This allowed them to leave the Circus Baby's entertainment and rentals facility, and live amongst the surface in plain view of society for a time. As time went on, the inevitable occurred, and the faultiness of their plan had revealed itself. For as the days began to pass with them inside Michael, his skin began to decay. This did not go unnoticed by the locals, who started to run and hide in fear when Mike's skin eventually reached the advanced stages of decay, the dead tissue of his skin mutating his pink hue complexion into a dark, rusty purple. Realizing that their disguise was no longer fooling anyone, the Ender conglomerate had chosen to evacuate Michael's corpse and retreat to the sewers, leaving Michael's corpse to rot on the side of the road. But, somehow, despite literally being hollow inside, Michael's body began to move. He uncannily stood upright and his empty eye sockets reanimated with life with small white glowing dots acting as his pupils. 
Michael recollected his resurrection with a phone call to his father, wherein he reveals the reason he was at Circus Babies was to save his sister on orders from his father. The problem was, they all mistook Michael for his father, as they apparently had a similar appearance. With a second chance at life in his possession, though one where he must hide away in the shadows, Michael vowed to find his father. For, at his time and sister location, Michael would discover that his father was responsible for the destruction of more than just his life and childhood, but the deaths of multiple people and the ruination of lives of an untold amount of families. A discovery and revelation that, once understood, completely reshapes the entire story of Five Nights at Freddy's in one fell swoop. Tonight, just like we did with Five Nights at Freddy's 4, we will be analyzing the last remaining puzzle pieces and clearing up any remaining questions that Sisterification may have left us. If you haven't already, I recommend listening to our previous two episodes, Episode 6, There Was Never Just One, and Episode 7, Listen to My Voice. So you're all caught up in the story of location and what we have discussed and went over. Tonight we will be analyzing who Michael and William truly are, the game's alternate secret ending, and the truth behind the designs of the fun type animatronics and the facade of Circus Babies Entertainment and Rentals. This is episode 8. Please stay in your seats. The show will begin momentarily. Everyone, please stay in your seats. location, there is a secret minigame the players can access if they receive a game over. If the player fails and Michael dies, before they restart the game, there is a small chance that they will instead be taken to an 8-bit death minigame, which has made their return for Finance of Friends 2. This minigame is a 2D platformer that involves Circus Baby having to solve puzzles to serve children various cupcakes under a time limit. If the player dies or chooses to complete the stage to the exit at the very end, they will simply be booted back to their last checkpoint and unable to access the minigame again. The game itself is unlike other death minigames in the franchise in that it is bright and cheerful without a hint of supernatural visible anywhere in the game. Colorful music and bright colors envelop the player as they proceed through it, and one can't help but notice the shimmering, smiling sun watching everything unfold in the top right corner. Once the player reaches the goalpost, no matter how well they did, they will be met with a colorful jingle congratulating them for reaching the end. However, if the player is able to successfully make every kid happy, at the very end of the level, an ice cream cone will spawn just before the goalpost. Once collected, the game suddenly shifts. The music lowers in pitch, and both it and the in-game timer start to slow down. With no other direction, a player will more than likely retrace their steps to see if they can use a new item somewhere in the level. 
As they begin traversing the stage again, one can't help but notice some unseen oddities that they may have missed their first time around. The most glaring is Strix Baby herself. Her eyes aren't her usual emerald green, but instead a lapis blue. All is made clear by the end, or should I say the beginning, because if the player reaches the start of the level with the ice cream, Baby will place the ice cream down. And from the left side of the screen will emerge a blonde-haired girl with green eyes. It's Elizabeth. The minigame will then unfold the events that caused Circus Baby's Pizza World to shut down its doors and cover up its closure. The one time Baby ever served ice cream from her stomach hatch. She killed Elizabeth by opening up her stomach cavity and extending a separate appendage and locked the little girl in a steel grip. She was then enveloped into the robot's chest cavity where she was more than likely crushed to death inside the machines of various robotic parts and servos. Circus Baby's eyes now transmute from blue to green. Elizabeth's soul now resides in the machine she loved and the vessel that killed her. take a moment to pause before going into our next topic. I just have to say how much I love this death minigame. Sister Location is my favorite game in the entire franchise, and a lot of that has to do with its story, and how this story was Scott on his A-game when it comes to visual storytelling. The jump scare at the end of the minigame is one of the most spine-chilling moments in the franchise, as the realization and suspense of seeing the young girl approach baby, your mind slowly realizing what's about to happen, followed by that horrific scream. There's one part mechanical whirls, but still retaining the semblance of humanity. It's just such an effective scene and one of the best moments of the entire series. And it's not like these scenes come out of nowhere. Keen observers might notice the entire minigame was hinting that this was going to happen. Remember, when on night three, Baby told Michael the story of the first and last time she was on stage, she had to keep track of children going in and out of the room. Well, in every panel of this minigame, the exact same number of kids, in the exact same order as Baby counted, are here. In with Elizabeth, as the one child who's left alone. reason the business closed wasn't because of just the disappearance of Elizabeth Afton, it was what caused the disappearance. But that begs the question, why are the fun and animatronics not only so aware, but also so violent? 
Remember in episode 6, when William was questioned by the board of investors on the robot design choices, and William was unwilling to answer the board's concerns? There's no doubting what you've achieved on a technical level. These are clearly state-of-the-art. There are just certain... ...design choices that were made for these robots that we don't fully understand. We were hoping that you could shed some light on those. She can dance. She can sing. She's equipped with a built-in helium tank for inflating balloons right at her fingertips. She can take song requests. She can even dispense ice cream. With all due respect, those aren't the design choices we were curious about, Mr. Afton. What were those design choices that the board was so concerned about? So concerned that they would go so far as to remove William from his own company? Well, luckily for us, we actually have access to those answers. As they're due exist blueprints for the fund of animatronics. They, strangely enough, do not exist in-game, but are instead hidden within the location game files. I guess Scott was anticipating that people were going to go through them anyway. Within these blueprints, we can see certain features that are unusual, to say the least. Programs including Funded Freddy alone include proximity sensor, 360-degree parental motion tracking, and a voice modulator for mimicking and luring. The other Funheims equally have other cryptic and eerie program features, including deter misdirect activation parental and voice sync and replay systems, and something called a variable scent release, which is heavily hinted to be some form of chloroform. I think it's clear to see by now that the fundamental animatronics are more than just state-of-the-art robots. They were designed with a nefarious purpose in mind. They were designed to kill and kidnap children without leaving evidence of the homicidal abduction even happening. There is even evidence in the blueprints of how exactly they were supposed to work, for inside Baby and Funded Freddy are storage tanks. Looking closer, the blueprints reveal that they were in shape of small children. Seeing as both how Funded Freddy and Baby had these tanks and are much larger and wider compared to Belor and Funded Foxy, it seems as though they were supposed to work as a tag team. Foxy would lure away children so that Freddy could isolate himself with a child, and Ballora would do the same for Circus Baby. Baby even hints that Ballora was responsible for the children leaving in a reminiscence of the day Elizabeth died. I was in a small room with balloons and a few tables. No one sat at the tables, though, but children would run in and out. Some were afraid of me. Others enjoyed my songs. Music was always coming from somewhere else. Down a hall. Considering the evidence, there seems to be a conspiracy involved with kidnapping children, and William himself seems to be involved in this. Now, I do want to be reasonable here. With the evidence presented and what the games show, we can only conclude that Elizabeth was the only victim of the Funtime robots, with, at most, a second child victim who inhabits Funtime Freddy if the blueprints are to be believed. But if these robots were known to be so dangerous, why would Admiral Box create Cirque's Baby's entertainment and rentals? 
Why invest money and resources into a project you know deep down is dangerous and deadly? Fastback Entertainment is no stranger to cutting corners and covering crimes to maintain the frame of a safe persona to an almost comical degree of negligence and lack of moral fiber to do so. But that was always in the context of a company not fully understanding the supernatural elements in play. The board of Afton Robotics knew fully well what these robots were capable of. So why would Afton Robotics do this? Now, at this point, what I'm about to articulate is not fact or confirmed as canon. I am putting my theorizing flat cap on and diving into small details that aren't widely discussed, but I think it's worth it when considering my evidence that this theory holds water and weight and should be held into consideration. Alright, we're all on the same page? Okay. Consider this. Why didn't After Robotics, upon discovery of the Funtime animatronics' abhorrent functions, scrap the robots and leave them rotting in some landfill? Or if they don't want people to know they exist, why not just shut them down and leave them in the pizzeria to rot as fast as entertainment did with the original robots? Why build such an elaborate underground storage facility if you truly wanted to hide what you were doing, instead of just depriving them of power and burying them below the surface. I submit that Circus Baby's entertainment and rentals is not a real business, but a set a cover-up front for not only hiding away the Funtime animatronics from the public eye, but also experimenting and dissecting them as well. Considering the previous games in the installment, we know that the robots are possessed like the original animatronics you don't need electricity to operate. This is why in Final Fantasy 2, robots are able to wander around despite being in a withered state. What if, just like the original animatronics, Agent Robotics isn't able to turn them off because they keep operating without power? This is why the facility is set up like a zoo and the robots are active during the night. Agent Robotics needs to keep the robots controlled and use electronic shocks to force them to get back on their stage. Now. Some of you may counter with my three. The whole objective is doing maintenance work on Funny Freddy by removing his and his hand puppet bonbon power modules from them. This is true, but you also know that hand unit is an untrustworthy ally. After all, we see that even after being scooped, Ballora was active. Not to mention that entered conglomerate is a mess of parts and wires and was able to remain active despite being in Michael's body for multiple days. A supernatural element known as Remnant also plays a role in this, but since this isn't brought into canon until the next game in the franchise, Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria Simulator or FNAF 6, and it's such a strange element in the FNAF story and lore that it's probably deserving of an episode in of itself, we will just save discussing Remnant for a later date. For now, let's just focus on the robots themselves which should be another point to consider for this theory. Sister Location's placement in the timeline isn't well established. We know it takes place after Finance of Freddy's 4, but prefer the first Finance of Freddy's game. Meaning at this point in the timeline, Michael has accidentally killed his younger brother, but had not yet taken up the position of Night Guard in Freddy Fazbear's Pizza that we all know and love. However, using what we do know, we can at least establish a 10-year window of which the games could have occurred, that being 1983 to 1993. 
the years when Friday Freddy's 4 and the original took place, respectively. If we acknowledge that this is when the games took place, we also have to acknowledge something else, which is how freaking advanced the robots are in this game. The Funtime robots are canonically the most advanced robots in the entire series, capable of performing multiple actions and functions, while also maintaining a highly sophisticated AI system that borders on self-awareness and mimicking human conscious. Is it not possible that another reason Action Robotics hasn't destroyed the Funtime animatronics, and has placed so much infrastructure to contain and dissect and observe them, is that they are attempting to regain their losses by finding a way to replicate the machines. Remember, these robots were designed and built by William, but after the true purpose of these machines were discovered by the board, they rightfully fired him, most likely not arresting him or pressing charges in order to not be implicated in the murders. Perhaps after firing him, after robots couldn't create the same level of AI and robots they previously could. In particular, their ability to run without power or electricity for long periods of time. So Athen Robotics locks them underground and has them observed and worked on by only a handful of engineers to maintain the secrecy of the operation. Meanwhile, they utilize hand unit to maintain records and use the scooping room to dissect the robots piece by piece without destroying their familiar shells. This could also explain the irregularities and oddities that Michael either notices or experiences in his week at sister locations, such as the danger tape that covers the vent shaft that Michael crawls through, or why Hanuda is so adamant about shocking the robots to get them to stay in line. It's all a way for After Robotics to rediscover how William built the Funtime animatronics and recoup their losses. Perhaps they even succeeded if certification is to take place before Finance Freddy's 2, and after Robox was able to create the toy robots. After all, Film Guy mentions that the toy animatronics cost a small fortune in FNAF 2, and there is no doubt in my mind that the Funtime animatronics manufacturing build and upkeep makes that small time fortune look like a pittance. And it's not like other advanced robots aren't seen as the series progresses from this point. But like I said, this is just a theory. There is no confirmation at all that Circus Bay was entertainment and rentals as a cover-up, or that they're analyzing the robots to recreate their innovative design. I would have liked to have learned more about what happened after robotics. The company isn't really brought up again in any mainline game, and it's some situations both after robotics and Fastman Entertainment are treated as the same entity when they were brought in as separate. Before we move on, I'll leave this topic on one final note. One of my favorite easter eggs in Finance of Freddy's. There are two companies throughout the entire FNAF franchise, those being Fazbear Entertainment and After Robotics. If you take the first initials of each part of the company's name, you get F. E, A, and R. Fear. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. 
Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After the player completes the Circus Baby Death minigame, players will additionally be able to achieve a second ending to Sister Location. While this ending isn't the true ending, as the secret ending is officially labeled the fake ending in-game, the events are considered canon as a sort of what-if scenario. Let's return back to Night 5, shall we? As Michael makes it into Parsons' service, having crawled through Funtime Auditorium to reach the maintenance room, he is faced with a decommissioned circus baby. She is limp and lifeless and seemingly hollow, but her voice still emits from within. She tries to appeal to Michael, telling her that something bad has happened, something bad will always happen with her. There's something wrong with her, something dark, and she wants it to be destroyed, but she wants the good to remain. Michael, well, he doesn't buy this for a second. 
He half heartily obeys Baby's request, but only because he can't help but feel that something is watching him. There's something in the shadows, something quiet, thin and large, swaying back and forth, almost like a metronome, in the background, intently watching his every move. Once he is allowed to leave Parson's service, Baby tries to instruct Michael to head to the Scooby Room to the south of Fundam Auditorium. However, once Baby's distracted with her directions, Michael takes his chance to escape. Instead of going south, he quickly crawls north. There, he is met with a steel security door and keypad. He inserts his keycard and enters the private room, closing the security door behind him. Access granted. As Michael turned around to take in the new environment in front of him, an environment that he would be all too familiar with later on in his life. The private room highly resembled the security offices from Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, down to the soda cups and bits of trash scattered around the office space. Three monitors displaying nothing but static were set up on a small disk space in front of him, alongside a security tablet that accessed the various cameras within the facility. But perhaps the most heart-wrenching item in the office was a golden Fredbear plush leaning against the monitors. The yellow bear was lifeless, but a small rectangular device was positioned in his stubby paws. It looked to be a remote or even possibly a communication radio. It's very difficult to tell. Beside the plush hanging on the wall is a small numerical keypad. Michael goes over and punches the code 1983 into the wall. Suddenly, the three static monitors begin to display various camera feeds, but it wasn't in the facility. Instead, the feeds displayed black and white recordings of a child's bedroom, one of the bed, the other of the general layout of the room. It also displayed a hallway with various doorways, with a chair at the end. Michael knew this room. He knew that hallway. He knew the house that was being recorded because it was his house. These cameras were in the house he grew up in. But how? Thinking back to FNAF 4, recall how the crime child's only friend and guardian was his Fredbear plush? While there's no doubt that some elements of psychological distress was in play, there was never a true explanation for how the plush bear was able to be in every room in the house. Was it teleporting, or perhaps it was just an illusion created out of the recesses of the crowd child's abuse subconscious? Or perhaps, perhaps, the answer was much simpler than that. What if these bears weren't just emotional support dolls, but also secretly hiding nanny camps to keep tabs on the children of the house? The eyes do follow the crown child whenever he went. Is it not possible that there isn't exactly a supernatural element at play? but instead just an elaborate reconnaissance plan. As Michael observes the monitors, the speakers buzz with static, and the familiar voice of Hanyut comes online, albeit a very stern and direct Hanyut this time around. It seems that you have accidentally wandered into a restricted area. Due to the sensitive nature of the materials that you may be exposed to here, you will not be allowed to leave until the cleanup crew arrives at 6 a.m., so hang tight. 
Rest assured that you will be promptly rescued, fired, then sent home. Thank you for being an employee. We hope that your experience has not been as regrettable as ours. The sound of scrapes and mechanical squeaks echoes throughout the halls. Michael checks the cameras to discover the mechanical mess of wires of air staring directly into the camera. In the light, he can finally make out the steel behemoth. It was bulky in shape and was humanoid in built. The various wires almost looked like muscle tissue of the human body. Their face was covered with a white porcelain clown mask that Michael had passed numerous times inside the primary control module, complete with a bright neon party hat and button red nose. Behind the mask revealed a fragmented endoskeleton head, the lower half of its jaw ripped off with sparking wires drooling from its mouth and its right eye leaking out of its socket, like an eye hanging desperately on its optic nerve. But that was just a primary set of eyes. The various front-time animatronics that made up the amalgam, their eyes were darted across its body, some on their chest, some on their legs, and some on their arms. As we began to creep forward towards the private room Michael is in, Baby's voice began to speak from it. Why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you believe me? Sometimes I don't understand why people do the things that they do. I thought you liked me. I thought I did everything right. As Ender continued to gain ground on Michael from the east and west hallways, as well as the vent in the room above, Michael must continuously use the steel security doors to fend it off. As the night progresses, Ender becomes more and more hostile and aggressive in its advances. We don't want to hurt anyone, but we need you. We need you so that we can leave. We need you so that we can hide. Baby continues to talk with Michael throughout the night, while at first glance it may seem like a last-ditch attempt to appeal to Michael, as some of her lines are indicative of gaining sympathy. We need you, so that we can look like you. If they find us like this, we won't be able to try again. If they find us like this, we won't be able to try again. You must let us inside the room. I think her true intentions become clear as Ender becomes more desperate to get inside the room. It puts into light just how emotionally manipulative she has been throughout the entire game, ruling this entire time that she knew Michael was her brother. I don't understand. You won't die. And it will only hurt for a moment. Isn't this why you came here? To be with her again? Hello? 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 Baby starts to speak in the voice of Michael's dead sister Elizabeth. The soul resides within her. I don't understand. I don't understand. We need you so that we can hide. We need 
you so that we can leave? I can only imagine the amount of torment and pain going through Michael's chest. His heart beating faster and tears welling in his eyes, with the voice of his beloved dead sister being used against him. He never think he'd see her, let alone hear her again. And that same little girl has become a monster trying to kill him for her own benefit. I know it was an accident. You have to let me inside the room. Isn't this why you came here? To be with me again. Everything is okay. I'm still here. As the twilight hours of Michael's graveyard shift approaches, Ender began to move faster and faster, charging at the security doors whenever an opportunity was available. The creaks and grates became faster and harsher. The amount of power available for the steel doors kept draining, reaching the single digits. Until finally the lights went dim. The steel doors behind Michael unlocked, and Michael was able to escape. Michael is later seen at his house enjoying his soap operas with another bowl of popcorn, only this time made delicious with Michael's new basket of exotic butters. The immortal and the restless is playing, giving a cheesy happy ending with Vlad and Clara getting back together over the simplest of things. Vlad bought a kid's meal. It's cliche and tacky and makes all sense, but the, the comedic nature of the show still puts a smile on my face. As the hair on the back of a cat stands up straight, so also does the love between Vlad and Clara stand up against all obstacles. But what about the baby? What about the back child support? Stay tuned next season for those answers and more. As the TV turns to static, leaving on the cliffhanger, Metallic scratches start to get closer from the hallway. As Michael turns, a disheveled innard begins crawling towards him. Not acting hostile, just simply staring and moving in a non-threatening way. One eye flickers on and off as it moves beside Michael in front of the television, before the screen finally fades to black. I see you over there in the dark! Come on out! Josh? Josh, are you there? Mom? Mom, Mommy? When the young boy looked out from his hiding spot, his mother wasn't there. Instead, there was a pink bear.
let's review what we know about the immortal and the restless. As I went over in our previous episode, the show is a symbolic lens for us to use to view Michael's childhood, with Vlad the Vampire as his father, Clara as his mother, and the baby as Michael himself. Utilizing this, we can sufficiently say that the metaphor extends to the overall narrative of the story. In this, a clear story begins to unfold. Michael's father and mother had separated for unknown reasons, but before Michael was born. Once he was born, it was evident from almost every characteristic of the child who his birth father was, as he inherited almost every one of his characteristics. Yet Michael's father was adamant in his belief that he wasn't the father, holding his ground in an argument with his ex-love. Despite these arguments, their time together must have meant something, for they would soon revive their union and get back together. Despite the relationship between his father and mother rekindling, Michael's father did not see him as his own and was negligent towards the young growing boy. This lack of an authority figure would prove to be a detriment, as Michael's parents would give birth to two more children, a blonde green-eyed daughter named Elizabeth and a small brunette boy who we become to know as the crying child, or bite victim, from Finance Verse 4. The abuse Michael would have endured from his father would leave an impression on him, an imprint that he would repeat on his younger siblings, in particular his younger brother, who in later years he would torment with his innate fear of the phrase animatronic characters. Sometime before that, Elizabeth would disappear, being kidnapped by Circus Baby during the grand opening of Circus Baby's Pizza World, after which her parents would leave her room untouched in their family home, leaving it in a pristine condition. For unknown reasons, after her disappearance, the mother and father would become more absent in both of their sons' lives. The father would disappear into his work while the mother simply disappeared. We don't know if she is left in divorce, disappeared, or died, but she is clearly absent in the family home, leaving the now prepubescent Michael to take care of his younger brother all by himself. The lack of parental love and the addition of the forced role of guardianship with his mentally scarred brother being bestowed upon him must have made him feel like he had no control over his life. So instead of doing what the universe and daddy told him to do, Michael asserts himself. Mikey begins to overpower, cause fear, and traumatize his brother as an instinctive response to his ego being bruised, an overall feeling of self-worthlessness. Up to the point where his father's characteristics truly come into fruition. His bullying evolves to a level that some could consider mental torture, locking his younger brother in small confined rooms, leaving him alone in places he's afraid of, and even bullying him on his own birthday by taking to a place he is most terrified of. He probably could have gone further down a dangerous rabbit hole that would lead him further away from light. But a tragedy of his own doing would stop that. The death of his brother by his own hands. It was an accident. He never meant to hurt him like that, and he had no idea that stuffing his younger brother's head inside of Fredbear's mouth would cause his skull to be crushed and fractured. His younger brother would die in the hospital, in a coma that he was unable to recover from. Before he passed on, he was able to faintly hear his brother's apologies. He pleaded that he was sorry for what he had done and hoped he could forgive him. Until he started to fade away as the sound of a heart monitor flatlined. 
this left two remaining members in the family. Michael and his father, who would continue their lives isolated from one another, acknowledging and interacting with each other at the bare minimum. This would continue for a few years until Michael's father had a request for his son. He knew where Elizabeth was. She had been located in an underground storage center called Circus Babies Entertainment and Rental. In an attempt to find some form of self-redemption to save himself from the grief and guilt that was consuming him, Michael traveled deep below the surface of the facility to find and save his sister, or how his father said, put her back together. Only while he was there, he was shocked and outlined to discover the high-tech machinery and scope of the bunker, but that his sister was nowhere to be found. It was only on the third night, the night in which he crawled under the desk in Circus Gallery's control module, did he discover her location. When Baby reminisced about the one time she was on stage, the one time she made ice cream, the time she killed and kidnapped a small girl all alone, Michael realized what happened and where his sister was. Elizabeth was inside that machine. Even more, somehow, she became that machine. Mike was so desperate to save her, and when she claimed the fifth night that she wanted him to save what was good and destroy what was bad, he needed little convincing. He had naively believed that he could trust her sister in her new form, only to be disemboweled from the chest and be worn as a skin puppet for his sister and her cords to escape with. But perhaps there still was a little bit of a sister in there. For she was telling the truth. Michael didn't die. He survived the attack despite his empty shell of a body. His skin was rotting and distinctly purple and most likely smelled of blood of decay. But he was alive. With his new status in life, he only had one mission left to accomplish. Find his father. But why? What is so important about his father? Why is finding him so important and what will he do when he finds him? Well, isn't the answer obvious? Father, it's me, Michael. I did it. I found it. It was right where you said it would be. They were all there. They didn't recognize me at first, but then they thought I was you. Daddy, why won't you let me play with her? She's so pretty and shiny. Didn't you make her just for me? With all due respect, those aren't the design choices we were curious about, Mr. Afton. Michael and Elizabeth's father is William Afton, owner of Afton Robotics and co-owner of Fazbear Entertainment, the man behind the construction and design of the Funtime animatronics and their diabolical purpose to kidnap and kill children 
the man who was responsible for his own daughter's death and was willing to let his oldest son die in his place, manipulating his own guilt to set his monsters free from Zillow. To set his monsters free. But why? Why would William do all this? Consider this. Why did Vlad wear a purple suit in The Immortal and the Restless? Who do we know killed children at Fazbear's locations and was able to get away with it? Who may just know that souls of the dead could linger on through metallic bones if the right criteria are met? William Afton is the purple guy. The serial killer who lured five children into the back room in a spring bonnet suit and slaughtered them all. The man responsible for destroying so many lives, families, and memories with his debauchery. He was behind all of this. Michael wants to find his father because he knows what he has done. He's potentially the only person with at least somewhat stable mind that knows what he has done. So now, the guilt and responsibility. Michael must find his father and put him down so that both he and all his victims can find some semblance of peace. And with that, I believe today's episode is over. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, consider following us on Twitter at Fazbear Podcast or supporting us on our Buy Me a Coffee page using the link in the description below. Next episode is actually entirely up to you. Currently, this show has been analyzing every single Final Fantasy game based on their chronological release date. But with the recent release of Security Breach, the ninth game in the series, and the controversy surrounding it being so massive, part of me thinks it may be apropos to break the current trend of the show and dedicate an episode to it. Granted, this episode would be more of a review of the game as a whole and not an analysis of its lore, but with a game as divisive in the fanbase of Security Breach, it may just be worth it to discuss it. So I toss that option to you. In the episode description, there will be a link to a poll where you may vote for the next episode. We can either continue our forward momentum by analyzing Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria Simulator, aka Finance 36, or we can take a small break and talk about the newest game of the franchise, Security Breach. Additionally, you will also have the choice in the next episode being a Q&A. It's a new year, so we might as well try out some new things. Whatever you wish to see next, be sure to use the link in the description below to vote. I believe that covers everything. I believe that covers everything. Once again, I have been your host, Nick, and thank you all for listening. Have a good night. Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. 
American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0.